ask you to turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 20. Continuing in our series this morning from the Ten Commandments, we'll be looking at the Second Commandment, which will be Exodus chapter 20, verses 4 through 6. Exodus chapter 20, verses 4 through 6. Remember, the Lord has brought His people to Mount Sinai after delivering them from bondage in Egypt, has brought them there, and now as they have approached Mount Sinai, the Lord speaks to them, having come down in His glory. The Lord speaks to His people out of the fire and the whirlwind through sounds and claps of thunder. And as He does, He says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before Me. And then He continues here with the second commandment, Exodus chapter 20, verses 4 through 6. The Lord says, You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or is that, or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you this morning that you have not hidden from us your truth, but you have given to it to us clearly. We thank you, Father, that not only have you given us your word, in your word you have taught us how to love you and follow you. And so, God, this morning, that's our prayer, is that we would be better believers of the Lord Jesus Christ, better followers of you, God, and that we would learn how to love you more and more every single day as you have loved us. All of this for your name and for your glory, we pray. Amen. I have had the uh, wonderful privilege of serving all over the world, different places, different countries, different experiences, in areas that are easy to reach in areas that were quite difficult. And there's been many stories. I can tell you a few stories, and surely over time you will get most of them, many experiences that I have dealt with. If you're around me for any length of time, I'll probably tell you one or another story just in passing. From the time that I was told to stop preaching at gunpoint to the time that I almost lost my foot due to infection in another country. But one moment out of all of these moments really stands out to me. One moment, I was sitting, this, this moment, I was sitting in a car at a railway gate, just me and two other fellas that could not speak my language, and we were in South Asia. Now, when I say at a railway gate, I that might not be easily translatable for us. I, uh, staying here just across the railroad tracks at the church, there's times that it takes me less than a minute to get to church, and then there's times that it takes me about 10. It all depends on whether I get stopped by the railroad tracks, you know what I mean, by the train. At the same time, in South Asia, a railway gate is something quite different. There, it's not automatic. It's not electric. There's actually a couple guys that go out there and pull it down when it's time to pull it down. 
There's not really any communication system. They go by the chart that tells them what time the train is coming. So as cars are coming past, they'll just go out and say, it's time for the train. They'll pull down the railway gate, and then you just have to stop and wait. And the train may not be on time. I literally have sat at a railway gate in South Asia for sometimes up to two hours. Because if you pick it up and you go, what happens if the train comes in? You're really in trouble, aren't you? And so once you pull it down, you're sitting there. And I remember this one particular day, just sitting there, looking out the window at this at the railway gate, looking over to the side. I was captivated by what I saw. Beside the railway gate was a, a man, and he was simply mixing concrete. He was pouring it into some forms. All around him on this little shack he was there working at, all around him were concrete statues, unpainted, just kind of the grayish look to them. These statues just sitting there. And as I was watching him do this work and working, just kind of passing the time, a man came up to him with an old wheelbarrow. I'm not really sure how it was still operating. He gave the old man some, some money or exchanged some things with him, talked for a little bit. He purchased one of those statues. It was just big enough or just small enough, either which way you want to look at it, to fit inside his wheelbarrow. And with all the strength that he had, he began to push it away. And I watched him as he passed out of sight. And it wasn't until then that I noticed that I was crying with tears rolling down my cheeks. Why? Because this little man had just purchased a statue made by another little old man, made out of dirt and sand, concrete mix and water. He would take that statue home, and like I'd seen many times around that area, he would paint it up, and then he would bow down to it and worship it. What he had bought was a graven image, if you will, an idol that he thought was going to bring him some sort of, of peace, some sort of satisfaction. But in reality, God's Word says those things bring nothing like that. Psalm 115 came to my mind there sitting in the car as I was just considering all of those around me who had fallen for this trap to worship creation rather than the Creator. And in Psalm 115... The psalmist says, why should the nation say, where is their God? When speaking to those who worship the one true and living God, the other nations have their idols. They have their carved images. And so they look at us and they say, where is your God? And Psalm 115 responds, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. But what about the gods of this world? Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk, and they do not make a sound in their throat. And then verse 8. Verse 8 is stunning to me. They have eyes, can't see, mouths, can't talk, feet, can't walk, hands with no power. And those who make them become like them. And so do all who trust in them. You see, what the Scriptures teach us is that these false idols of the world have nothing to offer. These false gods and idols and graven image have nothing to give. And some people think here as we come together 
Some people think that they're harmless or, or useless then. But that's not what Scripture says. It says that those who worship such things, those who put their worship in things that are not God, the one true and living God, become like them. In other words, hear me when I say this this morning. You are what you worship in some ways. You become just like them. And as we look to our passage this morning, this is what the Lord is teaching us. Remember, the Ten Commandments are given to us for us to prosper, for us to, to have life and have abundant life, to follow after the Lord. As He loves us, we learn to love Him, and He tells us how to love Him in this passage. And what He's saying to us here is He's saying, don't fall for the trap that you can make some sort of idol or some sort of image and bow down to that and think that that is some representation of me or anything else. The second commandment. The second commandment here is teaching us how we should love God with our worship. How we should love Him with our worship. Now some people believe that the first and second commandment go together. That, that maybe they're the same commandment in some ways. But I do not believe that's the case. The first commandment tells us something different than the second commandment. The first commandment has to do with worshiping the right God. Don't worship a false God. Reject all false or counterfeit gods. Worship the one true God. The second commandment has to do with how to worship that one true God. How to worship Him in the right way, the true way. How we worship matters, in other words. It matters just as much as who we worship. As we consider this this morning, we need to recognize that we can't worship God in any old way we please. We can't worship Him just how we would like to worship Him. But we worship Him in the way that He has commanded us. We worship Him in the way that He has shown us. He sets those guidelines. He sets those rules on how we are to come to Him. So as we look to these verses this morning, I want us to, to take this this passage, these few verses, 4, 5, and 6 of, of Exodus 20, the second commandment, one of the longer of the commandments, I want us to take it in four parts. Many commentators have pointed out these four parts, and I think it's a good place for us to look at this together, to see the same formula as we look at this passage. I want us first to notice the command itself. You are to have no carved images. We see first the command. You were to have no carved images. In its truest sense, an idol is something that is carved by a tool. Specifically, an idol was anything that was made that would serve as an object of worship for those. As verse 5 tells us, whenever you make these graven images or these idols, you shall not bow down to them or serve them. They shall not be any way looking as, a, uh, as anything for you to worship. The Lord is not against art. He's not against carving up and making statues. In fact, you'll see in Exodus chapter 31, you'll see in verses 1 through 5 where, where the Lord blesses and gives His Spirit there to some who are to make such things. These are the things He says in Exodus 31. These are the things He says... Uh, the Lord said to Moses, See, I have called by name Bezalel, 
the son of Uri, the son of Hur, the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with the spirit of God, with the ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, bronze, and cutting stones for setting and carving wood, and to work in every craft. In other words, the Lord says, I've provided, even through my spirit, those who may make beautiful statues and ornaments. And, and we'll see as the Lord does this, he'll design the Ark of the Covenant out of gold with cherubim on them and other things. There are things like that. So we love the beauty and artistry of, of, of statues and other things that man can create and making. God is not against those things. What God is against is he is against idolatry. What kinds of idols then? Nothing in all creation, he says, can match him. He says, you shall not make any carved image of any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or earth beneath or is in the water under the earth. The three aspects, if you've been following with us on Wednesday night, we've seen from creation that you have the heavens, the earth, and under the earth. The three aspects of creation. The Lord says you are not to make anything of all creation and worship it. What God is saying is that it's wrong to infuse any object with spiritual efficacy. There's not an object on this planet. There's not a creature in this place. There's not a statue anywhere that can help you when it comes to who God is and what he's done. No man-made artifact can bring you closer to God. Hear me when I say this. No man-made artifact can bring you closer to God. The most famous example of this, of course, comes just a few chapters later in the scriptures in Exodus 32. In Exodus 32, if you remember what happens, the Lord comes down on Mount Sinai. All the people of Israel gather around and the Lord speaks to them out of the thunder. And there he speaks and he gives them the Ten Commandments. At the end of that, the people say, don't let him speak to us anymore. It's too scary. It's too much. In fact, Moses, you go up to the mountain. You let him speak to you, and then you come down and you talk to us. So that's what happens. Moses goes up on the mountain, and he spends time with the Lord there. Several days goes by. He's spending that time, and before he can come down, the people start to get anxious. They have come out of Egypt where idolatry was rich, where serving and bowing down to idols was everywhere. And so as they come down now, they witness this, this appearance of God in his glory, if you will, on the mountain, and he spoke to them. God showed them no shape or form. He spoke out of the whirlwind of fire and smoke, if you will. And so now they want some shape or form to bow down to and worship. And so Aaron complies. Aaron, having coming out of Egypt as well, tells them, let's melt down your gold. Let's melt down all of that stuff. And they make a golden calf, as you know, and they bow down and worship that golden calf. But listen to what it says in verse 2 of Exodus 32. So Aaron said to them, take off the rings of gold that are in your ears of your wives, your sons and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand, fashioned it with a graving tool. This is exactly breaking the second commandment, by the way. And made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. Now, if you look at this passage, you'll notice that the word Aaron uses or the name he uses for the Lord is Yahweh. 
The very one that he had identified, Moses had, uh, God had identified himself to Moses as this is my name. I'm the covenant God. So Aaron is forming a golden calf thinking that he is creating an image of the one true and living God that has come down and delivered them out of Egypt and is now on Mount Sinai speaking. He believes this calf is an image that demonstrates God. That's what's happening here in Exodus 32 as he creates this, this image so that they could worship him. You see, that's exactly what the Lord says don't do. Don't create any image. Don't create any image that you think can confine me, he says. The Lord is not in those things. It's easy for us to want that. It's something we can see. It's something we can understand. It's something that we could put our hands on and tangible and touch. It's something we could do. It becomes easier for us. And so we prefer so many things like that. But what God is saying is that you cannot confine me. So here, the command is clear. You shall make no graven image. You shall not carve any image and worship it in any way. Don't bow down to it or worship it. But now let's, let's move on to the meat here. What's the reason for this? Which is the, the command, don't make any carved image, but what's the reason? There is no one like God. That's the reason. The reason is there's no one like Him. God is free. God is free. He's not confined or hampered by anything. There's nothing that holds him back. And the more you, uh, or, or once you think that God is represented by something, once you think that God is represented, whether it's a golden calf or whatever it may be, once you think God is represented by something, now you have confined him. But remember what the scripture says. Our God who sits in the heavens and does all he pleases, our God is, as we've learned from early ages, omnipresent. He's everywhere at all times. And so in that sense, there's no statue that can find, can confine him or his presence. We often think that we can put God, I say it like this, we often think we can put God in our pocket, don't we? We think we can confine him, we can tame him, we can pull him in and understand him, and we can only use him whenever we want to use him. And so it is whenever we make some image and act like that represents God or that gives us something of him. Like a genie in a bottle, maybe, we call on him. Whenever we need him, whenever we want him, we just simply call on him and ask him what we need, and then we give him no other consideration. But God is not confined to an image or an object. He is free. We don't pray. When we pray as God's people, we don't have to bow down to a certain direction. We don't have to look in, in one specific place or another. Why? Because our God is everywhere, always. He's close, as close to us as our very fingertips. He's not confined to a certain place. No place is more holy than any other. It's important for us to remember this. No place is more holy than any other. That's even important for us to consider about our church buildings and other things. That's important for us to consider even as we consider things in our traditions, as we look to places like the altar. God is not here more than he is there, brothers and sisters. God is at your very fingertips. You call upon him and he is there. You don't have to go to a special place. You don't have to point in a special direction. You don't have to hold your mouth right, stand on one foot and stick your tongue out. Y'all know what I'm talking about? You simply call on him and he is there. And that way he is free 
You cannot confine him to any image or anything. As Psalm 139 says, oh, Psalm 139, take your time today to read and consider the words of Psalm 139. Hear what David says, oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, oh Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Listen to this, what he says. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. How incredible are those words as we consider who God is. Do not think that God is confined to an image. Do not think he's confined to an idol. That is absurdity when we read God's word. But hear what David says. Whether we in the heavens or in the sheols, whether we're in the sea or on the mountains, God is with us. And not only is he with us, he's jealous. Not only is he free, he's jealous as verse 5 says. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Do not bow down and worship any other God, for I am a jealous God. Now, this word does not get much positive publicity nowadays. In fact, I've had several occasions where some have come up to me and tried to understand this because they couldn't put this into any understanding. How can God be righteous and be jealous? And usually that comes because this word is, is used in a negative connotation. It's meant to use as envy, if you will. And there is a slight difference. Envy is the desire to get something that doesn't belong to you. But that's not what is meant here. What this means is that when something does belong to you, then you must protect it. When something is yours, then you must protect what it is and what you have. God gets all the glory. It is his. All the honor is his. All of that is his, but even more so... These people that he's talking to, his people that he's redeemed, they are his as well. And God is jealous. He's jealous for them. A righteous jealousy is when you guard something that's rightfully yours. A righteous jealousy is when you take care of something that is rightfully yours. Again, if you consider the imagery that is given throughout of script throughout scripture of God's relationship with his people as a husband is to a wife that covenant relationship what husband would be happy and satisfied sitting back and just seeing his wife loving another man no he's jealous for that love He's jealous for it in every way, and so is God. God is jealous for this. It doesn't make sense or it doesn't compute. It's wrong if he's not jealous for his truth, for his love, for his glory. God feels this way about his people. God's love is a jealous love. And as we consider this, think of what he says in Psalm 86. There is none like you among the gods, O Lord, and there are any like your way. No ways like your ways. God's 
worship then, as he has this jealous love for his people, God's worship is not consumer-driven. God's worship is not consumer-driven. In other words, this is what Joshua says to the people, choose whom this day you will serve, either the gods of Egypt or the God of Israel. Choose who you will serve, because in Egypt they had many gods, and you could pick which one you wanted to bow down to, you could pick which one. They weren't jealous for their worship, but not the one true and living God. He's the one that gets all the glory, and he's jealous for his worship. So either you worship him or you do not. You do not get to choose which one you want. In fact, you do not get to even choose what God looks like, what God acts like, how God behaves and what he does. God tells us who he is and we worship him for it. There's only one. So when we come to worship, when we come to worship, we must remember that it's not about us. This hour that we gather here together on Sunday morning is not about you and me. It's about him. Our preferences, our desires, they take the back seat. What's most important is that God is glorified. What's most important is that he is the priority. We come and we worship, as Jesus says, in spirit and in truth. God is to be heard, in other words. Remember, Romans 10, 17, to give you this distinction. Faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Notice how that works with the second commandment. That's what we do in worship. The second commandment says don't make any carved images. That's about seeing something and bowing down, right? That's about looking at something and bowing down. But not when we come. Our God says that we proclaim his name. Faith comes by not by seeing, but by hearing. Amen? That's what we do in worship. We proclaim the one true and living God and His Son, Jesus Christ. And all worship must not be centered in images or idols, but in His Word. And so His Word is central. His Word reigns supreme. And God, God provides His own images. He's not calling us and asking us to make them. He provides his own, and his own came in a perfect way because the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And that word is Jesus Christ. And Paul, speaking of Christ, says he is the image of the invisible God. We don't need to carve any other image because God has come to us with the perfect image, which is his son, the full radiance of his glory. And we have seen the image of his son, and we glorify in him. He is the image of the invisible, as Paul says in Colossians 1. But notice what Paul doesn't say. After Paul says he's the image of the invisible, Paul does not go into this long explanation of what he looks like. Paul doesn't say he's the image of the invisible. So here's how it was. He was 6'5", kind of bald, handsome. See see what I'm saying? God does not give us the image of what Jesus looks like. Why? Because that's not what's important here. What's important here is not what he looked like, but who he was and what he did for us. We're not to sit there and concern ourselves with this. Paul says he is the image of the invisible, and it's him we proclaim. And so he looks to Christ, and he says, there he is. We don't need to make any images because God has provided his own as he sent his son, Jesus Christ. And there in Christ, we have seen the glory of the Father. 
And now what do we do when we worship? We don't look to any images. We don't look to any statues. We don't look to anything in any particular direction or anything. that. All we do is proclaim the true and one image of the Lord God Almighty, Jesus Christ, His Son. This command, though, has a warning. And here, the third part of this text is the warning. You will receive generations of judgment if you break this commandment. Generations of judgment will result here. It says down, he says, uh, For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. It may seem, or here we see, it may seem religious for people to worship idols. In fact, many nations are religious, if you will. They bow down and they worship other idols, but we need to understand that bowing down and worshiping idols is actually hatred for God. Now you think that's Old Testament language. Remember what Jesus said in John chapter 3. The light came into the world and they did not love the light. They hated the light because they did not want their deeds exposed. And so, so it is here. Any worship that is given not to God is not love for him, but hatred for him in Scripture. So it may seem it's real religious to worship idols, but it's showing actually hatred for God. That's what he says. Those who hate me. We never want to deny individual responsibility. Every single one of us will be held accountable individually before God. But please do not believe this morning. Please do not walk away thinking that your sin only affects you. Your sin not only affects you, but it affects those who love you and are around you. Your sin brings everyone involved and it is passed on in your lifestyle. The example here is set. Your worship, how you worship, and what you worship will affect your children. How you worship and what you worship will affect your kids for generations to come. Your hatred of God, and what I mean by that is your lack of true worship for Him and giving Him His proper place could be passed down to your own children. Oftentimes we don't think this way. Oftentimes we don't act this way. We don't consider as we think about our children and how we want to create a good life for them and how we want to set them up for success in the future. And unfortunately, even Christian people don't think this way. They don't think that the first and primary way that we set our kids up for the future, because we're not just talking about their college education, and we're not just talking about their job that they work through their 20s and 30s and 40s, and we're not just talking about how big a house they can have or how much success they can have. What we're talking about is eternity. What we're talking about is forever. And the Lord Jesus says, as you consider here setting up your kids for the future, you must know that the number one thing you should do is teach them to worship properly the one true and living God. And if you don't, you could bring disaster upon them, you could bring disaster upon their children, and upon their children as well. This must begin even here, today, even now. If you're alive, you still have time. But by all means, Brothers and sisters, understand that the choices you make affects those who come behind you. 
And how do we know this? We know this from the promises given, the fourth part of this, because just as God says there'll be judgment through the generations to those who do not worship me or follow me, he also says there will be blessing to those who do. But listen to how this is. The promise, like always in God's word, is more powerful than the judgment. Listen to what he says. But showing, verse 6, but showing steadfast love to thousands. And here in this context, this is thousands of generations, not just thousands of people, but he did the second and third and fourth generation before. Now he's speaking of thousands. So showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Here, when it comes to the judgment, he simply says to the third and fourth generation, but when it comes to the blessing, to those who love him, to those who follow him, it's to thousands of generations. To those who love him, the command tells us that not only is it for your good and for your glory to love him and worship him as he's commanded, but for those who come after you, it is for their good and for their glory. You will pass down your worship. You will pass down your priorities. You'll pass them down to those who come behind. When the Lord gives us the second commandment, he's not just telling us how to worship him, he's telling us how to love him. And we love him by giving him the number one place. There's no other gods. And we love him by worshiping him and him alone. We don't put our trust in any object. We don't put our trust in any people. We don't put our trust in anything. It's the Lord. And the Lord alone that we trust. And it's the Lord and the Lord alone who's always with us everywhere at all times that we call upon. So don't confine the Lord to a thing. Don't give your worship to another. Look to the image that he gave us, his son, Jesus Christ. Listen to his word proclaimed. Worship according to his word. Don't raise up any idols in your own heart or life. Don't think that any one thing can bring you any salvation or closer to God. It's only God through his spirit that draws you to himself. We always plan for the future of our children, from extracurricular activities to college to who they're going to marry. I used to think that's crazy that they have some cultures in the world that gets to pick their, the, the, the spouses for their children. I used to think that was nuts, and now i got kids, and I'm like, I'll pick. That's good. <laughs> but reality comes to us, y'all. There's so much responsibility that the Lord has given us as his people to pass down to those who come after us and to those whom much is given, much is expected. And so for us as a people who have the word of God so prevalent and so rich and so free to us, let us come to worship him, not in our own preference, not for our own understanding, not how we just simply like it, but for his glory and for his honor and for his name. And let's pray that that would be passed down to our children and hold fast to the promises of God that it will. The most important thing about us is what we believe about our God. And he's no small God. He is worthy of our worship. So let's show him. Let's worship him with our life. Let's love him with everything we have. Just as he's commanded us and called us to do. For he is worthy of it. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this. 
We thank you, God, that you are worthy. We thank you, God, that you have been clear to us. You're not far from us. We thank you, God, that wherever we're sitting right now, whatever pew it is in, you are there. Wherever we go through the week, you are there. Wherever we're at, God, at work, at home, at play, whatever it is, you are there. You're never far from us. You're never distant, God. You're there. Help us to see how big and glorious you are. Father, help us to know, help us to know that we don't trust in any other thing, nothing in all of creation, that our trust is in you and you alone. And God, help us to love you. Love you with our life. Love you with every part of us. Love you, Father, with our worship. Help us, God, to lift your name up high, to proclaim your Son, Jesus Christ. All for your glory and his name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together. Let's commit ourselves again this morning to worshiping him and him alone and be ready to pass that down to the next generation and generation beyond that and beyond that. Let's sing.